able to go guest preach at Oakdale Church of Christ. They're preachers on a sabbatical this month, and so they called me in. That's the church where my father-in-law is one of their shepherds, and uh, it was kind of fun. I, I was talking to my one of the members at the church, and I said, you know, my, my in-laws bought this cabin down in southeast Oklahoma earlier this year, and I assume that you invited me to come be a guest speaker as an experiment to see what will it take to get Larry and Jeanette to come to church, and now we know I'm not enough. It's, it's not good enough. I don't know if that says more about me or the church, but there we go. Um, but that's okay. We had a really good time, and they watched online, as, as many are doing uh, today. And so the church functions in more ways than it's ever functioned before. And God just keeps blessing us in spite of our circumstances. And we're so grateful for that and many other things. And I know many of the schools here in the metro area that had, had been going back in physical locations are now going virtual this week, my kids included. So the adventure continues in all kinds of, of ways, new and old. So uh, we just keep working and, and putting one foot in front of the other as we move forward in this year. Um, this morning, I wanna to talk to you about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Parable of the Rich Man and Lazarus. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about a different story um, that's been one of my favorite stories for many, many years. I think uh, I had to have got it from my dad. This is just right up his alley, this story. And the story is about two boys that were out working in the field one day, working in the field and uh, working on the crops and doing all kinds of stuff. And their dad came up to these two boys and he says to them, uh, get over here, I need to talk to you. They come over and, yeah, what's going on, dad? Uh, I need to know which one of you two boys pushed the outhouse into the river. They denied it, swore they didn't know anything about it, just were shocked that someone would do something like that. And the father said, listen, I'm going to tell you a story. The story's about George Washington when he was your age. Uh, he was a young boy, and, and for some reason he cut down his dad's cherry tree. And when his dad asked him, George, did you cut down my, father, my, my cherry tree? He looked at his dad and he says, Dad, I've got to tell you the truth. I cannot lie to you. I did. I cut down the cherry tree. And his dad wasn't even mad at him. His dad was so proud that he told the truth and that he had this deep sense of integrity that, that George didn't even get in trouble. At the end of the story, the youngest of the two boys looks down at his shoes and takes a step forward and says, Dad... I pushed the outhouse into the river. I'm the one that, that pushed the outhouse into the river. And the father looked at him, walked over there, bent him over his knee, and gave him the whooping of a lifetime. And the boy said, what, but dad, dad, I thought you said that George Washington's father wasn't even mad and he was just proud of him for telling the truth. And the dad looked at his son and he said, yeah, but son, George Washington's dad wasn't in the cherry tree when he cut it down. <laughs> which changes the story. <laughs> and if I were to ask you, and I love that story, that is dad's sense of humor, right? Just a nice, nice little twist there at the end. If I asked you then, after telling you that story, what's the story about? If you zoom in too far and you just get a little frame in, the, in just part of the story, what you're going to see is a story that's really just about George Washington and the cherry tree. And I might say, well, what was that story about? And you're like, well, it's about George Washington cutting down a cherry tree and telling his dad the truth. And to some extent, that would be true, but it would really be missing a lot. So if you zoomed out a little bit more and stretched the frame to the second frame, what you actually see is that the story is about 
uh, about boys that are learning the lessons of George Washington's life and putting them into practice. That it really is about saying, well, what, what did George do and what worked for him and how can I put it in practice in my life? And that frame is, is helpful to us, but it still misses something. It's really only when we get to the third frame, the one that zooms out and shows us the whole story, that we realize that this story is about how clever and wise parents can outsmart their troublesome kids. And that's what makes it such a good story. It's because we should always live in a world where wise and clever parents outsmart troubled kids and find ways to get them to learn the lessons they need to learn. So it's only when we zoom out and get the full and right frame that we actually understand what the story is about. We understand why it's funny. It is, of course, a joke. And the punchline is most powerful when viewed in the frame of the entire story. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of viewing a story with frames a little bit later with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, but first, I want to get into the story. I want to read it. And then we're going to need some background as to some of the things that are at play as Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees here in Luke chapter 16 and in other areas. So Luke chapter 16, we're going to go a little bit before uh, the parable begins, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, to verse 13. So we're starting in Luke 16 and verse 13 uh, because we need to understand the context that this story is being told in in, uh, in this part of the, the chapter. So... Uh, Luke 16, 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And skipping over to verse 19 where the story begins. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What an ending to this 
story. It's a heavy story. It's filled with a lot of anguish, a lot of agony, a lot of uh, suffering, both in this life and in the one that is described to come. And as we get into the, the parable, the thing that we have to realize is where it is taking place when Jesus tells it. Jesus is in the midst of a group of people, many of whom are Pharisees, and they love money. And so as Luke is writing about this, he tells us uh, in, in kind of an aside that the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus, which is a really incredible thing to say because Jesus has just said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then Luke tells us the Pharisees really loved money, which is a way of saying they despised God. And they demonstrate this by sneering at his son. You see, Luke talks about money and wealth and how we use our resources more, significantly more than any of the other gospel writers. It comes up a lot in Luke's gospel and also in the, the book of Acts. Uh, how we use the resources that God has given us, whether we use them for selfish and personal gain or use them for God's good purposes, is something that Luke cares a lot about. Uh, so in Luke's gospel, when Mary has her song in, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 52, she's going to praise God because he's the one who exalts the lowly and brings down the mighty. God is in the business of turning people's fortunes upside down. That Those who are a little bit too blessed and spend their time trying to lift themselves up, God's going to knock them down a peg. And those who are willing to be humbled and to serve and to not be worried about their own bank accounts, God will lift them up. And so Luke is very comfortable with this reversal of fortunes. And it comes up very clearly here in this story about the rich man and Lazarus. That there is an expectation in Luke's gospel that those who are too worried about providing themselves comfort will lose it. And those who are willing to give their comfort away for the sake of the kingdom of God and for others will be given some. All of that by God, who is a just God who makes things sorted out in the end. Now, in Luke 16 and verse 16, uh, it's, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Jesus says, listen, the law and the prophets have been preached all the way back to Moses. Moses brought us the law. The prophets brought us all of these teachings about how God desires mercy and compassion and not just obedience to religious rules. And the Pharisees loved the religious rules. They really had this idea that if everyone in Israel could just obey God for one day, the full measure of the law, that the Messiah would come and restore the kingdom that they wanted so badly to have come back. Little did they know that the one who was standing there convicting them and condemning them was the Messiah they longed for and that they were seeking to be obedient so that he would arrive. And yet he's saying to them, your obsessive desire for rule following and obedience is getting in the way of your mercy and love that I'm trying to teach you about are the markers of the kingdom that you think you want to be a part of. And yet you are actually in this very moment rejecting. And he says that the law and the prophets were proclaimed up until the moment that John came and began proclaiming to people, repent of your sins for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. The kingdom has arrived. And John begins teaching that new message. And Jesus, as the one who is following John the forebearer, is now taking that message and taking it even farther and proclaiming God's kingdom to them in this very moment. 
The news of the kingdom of God is being preached, Jesus is telling them. It's being preached right now. And I'm telling you, you're not going to hear it because you care more about money than God's will. You're serving the wrong master, and so you're going to miss the law and the prophets, which is going to come up again in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, this isn't new. This goes back to Moses. This goes back to the prophets, that you should be sharing what God has blessed you with, with others who are in need. That's the way of the kingdom. But you didn't listen to the prophets. You didn't listen to Moses. You didn't listen to John. And you're not even going to listen to someone who comes back from the dead. That's where the story ends. You know, Luke, by the time he's writing this, knows a couple of things that when Jesus is, is interacting with the Pharisees, as we read about in Luke chapter 16, as Jesus is having that, that historical interaction with the Pharisees, there's some things in this story that are foreshadowing in that moment, but that by the time Luke is writing them, he already knows these details in the story because he's writing the record of what he's learned. Luke knows two things that really make the end of this story really, really powerful that the Pharisees would not have understood because it was foreshadowing when they heard this story for the first time. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees, even if someone, even if Lazarus came back from the dead and told you and told your brothers, your family, what I know, even if that happened, they wouldn't listen. Well, Luke knows about two people who came back from the dead and are get rejected by the Jewish leaders. One of them is actually named Lazarus. And there's no reason historically to think that these stories are connected and that this is, for example, what actually happened uh, to Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, when he was uh, dead for a few days, in part because um, Lazarus was not a poor beggar at any point in the Gospels. This is an unrelated story, but there is a same name. And so one of the things that's really interesting is that Luke knows that uh, what John writes in John chapter 12, I think verse 10 and 11, uh, John writes that the Jewish leaders were getting so upset after Lazarus came back alive because so many people were beginning to believe in Jesus as a result of this guy saying, I was dead and now I'm not, which is a pretty powerful testimony to be able to tell people, I, I was in a grave for three days dead, and then Jesus told me to get out and I did uh, on the fourth day even. And so I, now that I'm alive, a lot of people are believing because of me. And the Jewish leaders who Jesus is telling, even if someone came back from the dead and testified to you, you would reject their testimony. And John chapter 12 gets so sick of people believing in this guy that was dead and is now alive, they want to kill him and start making plans to kill Lazarus. And Luke knows this when he's writing it. So when Jesus proclaims this in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's foreshadowing of what's to come. But when Luke writes it, it's convicting them of what he knows to have happened in the real life of Lazarus. But even more significantly, it's a reminder that Jesus Christ was crucified and on the third day was raised from the grave and offers people salvation if they will just believe him and be obedient to him. And yet... So many of the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees continue to reject him, even when he comes back from being crucified on a cross. They still reject him. And so Luke 
knows what has happened in the past that Jesus includes in this story as foreshadowing. But in, in, as we read it, we need to be aware that those two different time dimensions exist so that we don't take for granted the powerful foreshadowing that is in this story that Jesus has. The other thing that I think, and I've alluded to this a little bit already, is whether or not this story is parable or historical event. Um, and, and I think looking at the frames, which we're going to do here in a minute, will help us to kind of unlock that a little bit. Um, but when you think about this as a parable or historical event, the reason that question comes up uh, is that it's unlike other parables in two significant ways. Uh, one is it is the only parable, if it is a parable, that takes um, that tells of things happening in the worldly plane and in the world to come. So there's kind of a spiritual afterlife element to this story, and there's also a uh, down-here-on-earth element to this story. Uh, and there's no other parable that does that. And so it's unique in that way. So some people think, well, that if, if it's different from all the other parables in that way, maybe it's not one. It's also the only parable that uses a proper name. No other parable includes someone's proper first name. It's always... Uh, a woman who is doing something, or a man who's out in the field, or a king that goes here or there. This is the only one where uh, the parable has a proper name, and it's, of course, Lazarus. And the name is, is significant, I believe, if we're going to understand the parable. Uh, for one, you may have heard the rich man referred to as dives at some point, uh, or divas, I, I don't know. It's the, it's the Latin name uh, for rich guy. So it's just the Latin word for rich guy. And historically, once the Bible is translated into Latin, some people just uh, kept that name and did not translate it going forward into the future. So if you ever hear this guy referred to as dives, uh, that's just a matter of translation. It's just saying rich guy. Um, it's not actually his name. He is, in fact, left nameless in the story. And there's something really kind of significant, I think, to that. Because we live in a world where poor people are anonymous and unknown, and the wealthy are, are put their name all over everything, and everyone knows their name. But in this story, there is even a reversal in their fame and the knowing of their name. Lazarus's name is known throughout all of history because he was poor, and yet God saw fit to bless him. The rich man is anonymous to history because he had all his good things in this life and not in the future to come. But the name Lazarus is also significant because the name Lazarus is the Greek version of the Hebrew uh, Eleazar. Eleazar. And Eleazar is the Hebrew or Semitic name uh, that belonged to Abraham's servant. And so there was a Jewish kind of folk story, a Jewish midrash or tradition that was kind of commonly known during the time of Jesus and others, uh, where they believed that uh, Abraham's servant, Eleazar, would come down from time to time and wander the earth in disguise. And he would wander the earth, often disguised as a poor man or a stranger, to just test the people of God and see how they would treat those who were less fortunate than themselves. And that he would then go back and report to Abraham how the descendants of his lineage and his family and the nation of Israel, the people of God, were doing when it came to the treatment of the poor and the stranger. So in, with that context, suddenly this story takes on a whole new life as we understand what's going on. And that kind of story is very common in the ancient world. 
uh, Egyptian and Greek and uh, Babylonia, all kinds of different cultures have stories very similar to this, where those who are wealthy in this life become cursed and blessed because of their poor treatment of the poor uh, in this life, in the life to come. And the reversal of that also being true, that those who suffer and are poor in this world will eventually be blessed when it all comes out in the, the wash in the end, that there's always this reversal of fortune. And it encourages people to be careful that they take care of those who are less fortunate than them uh, in the world where they're living in. And that story exists in many different ancient cultures. The thing that's really different about the story that Jesus tells is there's a twist at the end that's very different from almost all of those stories. You see, if you're familiar with that genre of story in the ancient world, what you expect is when you get to the part of the story where the rich man says to Abraham, uh, please, please send Lazarus back to my brothers to tell them. The expectation is that he would say, yes, Lazarus, go back and tell them. They need to know. And Jesus does something different. He doesn't say yes. He says no. They've already been told by Moses, they've been told by the prophets, they've been told by John, and they wouldn't believe someone if they came back from the dead. That's not going to happen. And it's a surprise twist that's jarring. And it should prompt all of those who are listening to the story to realize, well, wait a minute. If they're not going to send someone back from the dead to tell us, then I guess we should be paying attention to Moses and the prophets. That should be enough. And Jesus is telling them that it should be enough and they should already be prompted to believe. So we need then to kind of take all of that background on this parable and look at the frames of the story. If we zoom in too far and we, we frame this story just in the part of Jesus's as he speaks the story out loud. So just the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We ignore the context of Jesus and the Pharisees. We ignore what Luke knows looking back in the future. We're only looking at the frame of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which in the text is verses 19 through 31. That's all we look at. And we're just looking at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We're going to run into some problems if that's what we think the story is about. One of the problems that we're going to run into is if you ask the question, according to this parable, how do people get saved? The answer is by being poor. If the whole frame is just the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, you would be saved by being poor enough in this life to be blessed and to be given great riches in the one to come. And you'll be lost if you have too much money in your bank account. Uh, God will just wipe that out and make you suffer for the rest of eternity. That would be the salvation message of the rich man and Lazarus if that's the full frame. But there's other problems like, you know, do you actually think that people in, in heaven for all of eternity uh, can occasionally walk over to the great chasm and look across and see all the people suffering? Like, is that the reality TV show that heaven offers to people who have been blessed and have this great life and that part of their reward is to watch people eternally in torment? It, it causes some problems like, uh, is it actually Abraham's full-time job or is he just taking a shift at listening to the complaints coming across the chasm from the, the area described as Hades, the place of torment? He has to listen to people who say, Abraham, I'm thirsty, send me a drink. And he has to say, no, there's a chasm, I can't do that. And they're like, please. And he says, no, and this would just go on for all of eternity. That's not any fun. 
But it is a historical problem that would occur if we were only looking at that frame and not looking at the rest of the story. It causes some of these problems if we zoom in too much. The least of, not the least of which, one that is, I think, pretty significant, is if we just look at this story, someone who's very callous might actually draw the conclusion, you know what, if that's how you get saved is by being poor, the best thing we could do for poor people is to let them continue to suffer in this life so that they can be blessed in the one to come. So all the poor people that I'm willing to step over and ignore, you're welcome. God will take care of you later. It's not my job now. Okay, we can come up with all kinds of problems by zooming in too far on this story. But it does have value, and that's why Jesus teaches it. It has value within the ministry of Jesus because it teaches that what it's important to care for the poor in this life. And it teaches uh, the reality of eternal blessings being more important than temporary blessings. It gives uh, comfort to those who are in suffering to know that their season of suffering will end and that God will restore things and make them better. That's the first frame. But I think, as you can tell, I think it's important that we zoom out and catch the next frame. If we zoom out a little bit more, the second frame is not just the rich man and Lazarus. The second frame places us in the historical moment where Jesus is actually telling this story to the Pharisees and those who are in the crowd. And they're listening to Jesus tell them about this parable and about this story. And as they listen to it, and Jesus has just told them, you either love God or you love money. And you Pharisees, we know that you love money. And he tells them this story in such a way that it is intended to function as a mirror. That as Jesus tells them the story, he's holding it up to them as a mirror that allows them to look into it and see themselves more truly than they did before. And many of the parables are intended to function in this way. That if you read them and they strike you to the heart, it's like a mirror that allows you to see where you need to repent or grow or change or become more like Jesus and less like you were in the past. And the story is supposed to function that way. And when it's done publicly like this, it's also supposed to help the crowd look at the Pharisees and go, Oh man, Jesus is calling you guys out for your wrong behavior for your improper values. Uh, the second frame is in the moment where Jesus is talking to them and telling them what's going on. And he exposes their love of money over love of others and suggests that nothing, even a miracle like resurrection, would cause them to change because they're just too stubborn. The third frame is the one that for me is the most fun. The third frame is when we imagine the moment that Luke puts pen to paper or to papyrus, if you will, and writes the letter uh, that he is he's writing to Theophilus. And Luke has done the interviews and he's done the investigative work and he's writing this story down. And, and you had to know that when Luke, who is not an eyewitness to these events, but is, is compiling the stories of those who were, was interviewing people. And, and they said, well, let me tell you about this one story he told. And it was to a bunch of Pharisees. They were really greedy and everyone in the room knew it. And Jesus told this story about the rich man and Lazarus. And, and Luke's just taking notes. And he gets to the part at the end of the story where the eyewitness says, and then at the end of the story, Jesus says, uh, you wouldn't believe someone even if they came back from the dead. I can just imagine Luke saying, he said what? He said that they wouldn't believe this testimony even if someone came back from the dead and told them it was true. And Luke had to just go, oh man, that is such good material. 
This is going to go right in chapter 16. Everyone's going to love it. Because it shows that Jesus knew in advance what Luke now knows has happened in the past. That Lazarus came back and they wanted to kill him. That they did kill Jesus. He came back and they rejected him. What Jesus predicts in the story of the rich man and Lazarus has come doubly true in a way that is incredibly convicting. So that when Luke writes it to his audience, he expects that some of them will get to that story and go, Oh, I'm the person Jesus is talking who is rejecting the testimony of the one who was crucified and resurrected, came back from the dead, and I still haven't believed. And Luke's just going, this is so good. That's the third frame. And the fourth frame happens when the Bible is later, uh, all the books of the Bible are brought together in their complete form, and it's given to us today. And the fourth frame invites us now to say, based on all of that story, the story of one who was crucified and resurrected came back and said, this is all true, and so you should live differently taking care of the poor. Are we willing to put that into practice in our life today by being obedient? We're the people of the fourth frame. And so the story continues to be lived forward in the lives of those who say, I believe the resurrected one. I believe the one who did come back to life. And because of that, I'm going to live according to his teachings, including this one on the rich man and Lazarus. And when we start to understand that that's how the fourth frame functions, we realize that when we zoom all the way out, that the story is about believing a resurrected person who calls you to care for those who have less than you. So you have to ask then, if I believe the one who came back to life, what do I have extra of that God wants me to share? Do I have extra power? extra wealth, extra honor or prestige? Do I have extra time, talents and gifts, abilities that God's given me, extra treasure and money that God has given to me? Whatever God has given you an abundance of, He is entrusting it to you to see the person who needs what you have and bless them with what God has blessed you with. And so you have to do the work then of evaluating what God has trusted to you to now share with others. But it's important that we not think that the story is about giving away enough money to be saved. If we think that it's about giving away enough money to be saved, or we think about how the poor are the only ones going to heaven, we've zoomed in too much on the wrong frames, right? We're looking at the wrong details of the story. It's only when we zoom out at the third and fourth frames that we really understand that it's about how people who believe in the resurrected would respond to that faith by then sharing what they have extra of with those who have less. And that it prompts us to new life and new action as a result of faith. It's about faith launching us into a new way of living. The reality in our world is that there are plenty of voices who are saying, what's yours should be mine. What you have extra of, I should get. I'm entitled to your surplus, or what I consider to be your surplus. But the Jesus way is different than that. The Jesus way is not to go around saying, what's yours is mine. The Jesus way is for people to recognize, what I have is entrusted to me by God, on loan. It's his, he's just letting me use it for now. 
The Jesus way is to see people how God sees them, how Jesus sees them. That we don't see the beggar at the gate as a piece of trash that has to be stepped over and ignored. We see him in God's image. We see him as one that needs to be provided for and taken care of and treated like a son of the king. The Jesus way is recognizing that God wants me to use all of the blessings that he's given me, not for my benefit and glory and honor, but for his and for his good purposes in the world. That I can become someone who occasionally uses them for the blessing of my family, which is something God wants me to do and to have and to enjoy. God several times refers to himself, Jesus refers to God as a good father who wants to give his children good gifts. But some of the gifts he gives us are so that we can pass them on and make them gifts to others. When we understand the Jesus way, we should willingly choose what's mine should be yours. Because God gave me more than I need. Jesus gave me all that he had so that I can become the kind of person who shares with you because I have been given more and I see that you have less and I choose to give you some of my surplus, my blessing, my abundance. It's not the world's way of what's yours is mine. It's Jesus's way of willingly choosing that's what is mine can be yours because I want it to be because Jesus showed me how to give and I now live that forward. Not as a condition of my salvation, not as a means of being saved, but because I was willing to listen to the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets and the one who came back from the dead. And now I live my life according to his teachings, and I ask that he fill me with his spirit that is promised once he uh, goes back to be with God, that the spirit then lives in us and through us, allowing us to be Jesus to a world that needs to see him. And one of the ways we demonstrate who Jesus is to a watching world is through radical generosity, being people who are not like the rich man in the story, but people who are like Jesus, who sees everything he has as God, sees every person as God's child, sees the extra that he's been given as an opportunity to bless others, and then lives accordingly. This morning, I hope that you're realizing that this story, when viewed in light of the fourth frame, is a call to action to those who believe in Jesus. If you've never made that decision to believe in Jesus and then make, start making the life-changing decisions that come with that, I would encourage you to come forward this morning as we stand and sing.